morning, church. Uh, I'm Leland Brown, one of the pastors here. It is, as always, a joy uh, to fill in for Buster, who is traveling to see his family on the West Coast. Uh, it's also very humbling uh, to fill in for Buster and preach in a lot of ways. One uh, small and funny way, and which has been humbling to me, is that occasionally when I preach, I uh, remember that there are a lot of members of our dear family here who don't actually know who I am. Uh, because they will compliment Van on my most recent sermon. Van's another pastor here. Um, I guess I consider that like a double compliment, you know, like they like the sermon and uh, confused with Van. But uh, uh, anyways, apparently when there are two associate pastors who both have beards and glasses and love coffee and quote literature, it can be kind of hard to know who's who. So I'm Leland uh, again. Um, But interestingly enough, in our passage this morning, Hebrews 2, Uh, If you have a Bible, go ahead and get that out. It's also uh, printed in full in your bulletin, or if you have a mobile device, you can do that too. Uh, Our passage this morning, Hebrews 2, um, will really just focus on verses 10 and 11. But in those verses, it is also a little hard to know who's who. Uh, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and God's people are all spoken of in some um, not immediately clear ways. So I'm just going to explain who's who briefly. We'll read the text, and then hopefully we'll uh, understand and jump in. So, Verse 10 and 11 read, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, that's God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, the many sons, that's all of God's people, you could translate it sons and daughters, all right, that's what God's doing, he's bringing us to glory. Uh, It's fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's the Lord Jesus. And then in verse 11, for, this is the reason why it's such a good idea, He who sanctifies, that is also the Lord Jesus. And those who are sanctified, that's again us, God's people. They all have one source. And that source, as we will see, is a full human experience. So the uh, loaded and mind-boggling message of these two verses is essentially that it is fitting and it makes God look good and glorious in his plan for us to make the Lord Jesus perfect through suffering so that the one who sanctifies us, the Lord Jesus, has himself been sanctified. We'll take a whole sermon to explain what that means, I think. Um, But uh, we're going to read all the way to verse 18, and we will spend just a little bit of time in the other verses. So here we go. Hebrews 2, 10 to 18 in full. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, That is why he's not ashamed to call them, again, that's us, God's people, brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Lord, what a reality that you, God the Son, forever glorified, eternal, that you became 
a man, and because you, as a man, have suffered when tempted, uh, you can help us this morning as we are tempted in a variety of ways. We're tempted to neglect your word, we're tempted uh, to fear, to tremble, um, but we just, we just thank you that you can help us. And I do pray this, this morning that you would help us, that you'd help me be clear, uh, that you'd help us to hear and just rejoice in who you are. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher of the 19th century, who most likely you probably know his name, uh, he was mightily used of the Lord. He regularly preached to thousands of people, saw innumerable conversions in his life, has been named by historians the Prince of Preachers. He also regularly, after all this ministry victory, went home and cried like a baby. He was so depressed and the darkness wouldn't lift. John Owen, another one of those famous theologians who is so well regarded today, had 10 children and buried every single one of them. To make matters worse, uh, every professional and political goal that he achieved in his lifetime was roundly destroyed by the time of his death. I just read a biography of Owen and the subtitle was Experiences of Defeat. Talk about a subtitle you don't want for your life. Adoniram Judson, the first American missionary to cross the Atlantic, went to Burma, which is modern day Myanmar, uh, and basically was the reason there were ever Burmese Christians. Uh, he established the church there, but uh, a couple years in, he was put into prison by the Burmese authorities, and uh, Burma was a jungle, and uh, these Burmese authorities were not nice people, so in this prison, uh, they would hang you upside down by your feet at night to sleep so that you would be extremely uncomfortable and so your head would be on the ground where all the jungle creatures could crawl on you. Uh, after Judson was released, he nearly lost his mind because his pregnant wife had broken her health caring for him in prison and died after giving birth to their child. Uh, he recovers his mental health. He endures for another 25 years or so in Burma. He creates the Burmese language, establishes the Bible, uh, creates the Burmese church, and the jungle finally gets the worst of him. The disease that finally killed him was so painful that some of his last words were, how few there are who die so hard. Now, uh, when we hear stories like that, of faithful Christians who love Jesus and live radically for him and who suffered like that, there's a few responses. I know my first response is, Lord, not me. Let the superhero Christian suffer. Let, let me just be okay and protected and provided for. Uh, another response, if you are suffering right now, might be, you know, that my life is rough, but it's, it's been done before. It's, it's almost comforting in a way to know that God's people have suffered. Uh, but maybe the most prevalent response and the one at the heart of our text today is the question, Lord, why? Particularly when it's me suffering, like when I'm the one going through something unspeakable or when you're the one going through, or when someone close to you, Lord, where are you in that? What are you doing in that? And uh, it's very relevant. We have every kind of degree of suffering in this room. We've got people going through the extreme stuff. We've also just got those daily life sufferings, declining health. Just everybody needs you all the time and you have no margin. <laughs> Marriage on the rocks. And the book of Hebrews has one big argument and that argument is that we should hold fast to Jesus because he is the best and most fitting savior. 
This particular passage is a little slice of that argument, and what it says is that Jesus is the best and most fitting Savior, not just for sinners, but for sufferers. That because God became a man, and that great story in the scriptures that he died, he rose again, and he lived as God with a fully human life, he's not just our Savior who deals with the consequences of our sin, He is our savior who has suffered and who meets us in our sufferings. Now to really see uh, how good of a savior Jesus is, we've got to see what God is doing, what his purpose is for us, and uh, what his pathway for us is. So let's see that in the text real quickly. First thing we see in our passage is God's good and gracious purposes. Notice uh, in verse 10, God the Father, right? He's the one for whom and by whom all things exist. There's just a reminder in this text. We were made for God. We didn't make ourselves. We, we, we exist by him. In fact, we, we don't get to establish our own purposes for our lives, right? Uh, but this God has incredibly gracious purposes. It says here in verse 10, he is bringing many sons to glory. In other words, what God does is he takes sinners and broken people, he turns them into sons, he gives them an identity, and he doesn't just leave them as sons who wait until you know, heaven comes. No, no, in their lives, he transforms them into glory. The glory here is not just the glory that's coming. That's, that's a part of it. It's the glory of restored humanity, of being who you were meant to be, of, of Eden restored in your life, in who you are and how you live. You know, Romans 8 says it, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God has nothing less for you in, the pre- in your present Christian life, if you know Jesus, nothing less for you in your life now, not just forever, but now, than your transformation into all the maturity and all the likeness and all the love and the beauty of Jesus himself. And uh, what I have found is one of my biggest problems. I don't really want that, particularly when I see what it requires of me. I want my life to be comfortable. Like, I, I want the protection, the provision. You know, I, I kind of I bought this lie that I can kind of baptize the American dream and be you know, decently provided for, successful, popular, well-liked, And so when God brings something ridiculous into my life to humble me, to make me like Christ, I'm like, what's going on? Maybe that's the case for you this morning. But I want you to take a look at your life. The details, the circumstances, the blessings, the really hard things, and all those treadmill, boring things in the between. What is God doing? God's will for you right now in your circumstances is not to escape your circumstances but for you to be transformed into the glory of his son, Jesus. A glory that, as the scriptures say elsewhere, will be yours forever. There's a reason pastors always talk about Lord of the Rings. Um, If you, like my bride, hate Lord of the Rings or never watched it, I'm going to tell you a story that I like, and hopefully you'll like it too. Okay, here we go. Um, some of the main characters of the hobbits are uh, some of the main characters of Lord of the Rings are these hobbits, these little shorter, kind of mostly human creatures. And anyways, um, at the beginning of the series, they basically live your best life now. 
They live in this place called the Shire. Everything is great and beautiful. Uh, hobbits uh, just love to sit back and enjoy life. There's this great scene in one of the early movies where they started this journey they go on, and they're with these tough guys, and, and it's, you know, 10 a.m., and they're like, hey, man, when are we stopping for breakfast? And the guy's like, we've already stopped for breakfast. And he goes, no, 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 what about second breakfast? Or 11 cease, you know? That is my kind of person. Like, I love a good mid-morning snack. Anyways, uh, these uh, unfortunate hobbits get caught up in saving the world, and for several years... Um, they are sleeping on the ground and, and chased around and their lives are in danger. And they are, at the beginning, bumbling idiots. The first book is basically everyone else saving their lives because they're so like incapable. Anyways, this goes on. They suffer greatly. Their lives are threatened. They're in all these battles. In fact, Frodo and Sam, two of the main characters, have to go to this horrific place called Mordor, where the very air you breathe wants to, like, like try, is trying to kill you. All the, everything existing there is bent on your death, and they have to go, and it comes this close to killing them, and Frodo never recovers. He survives. Anyways, they survive all this craziness, and the movies kind of end happily ever after, but in the books, they come home to the Shire, and it has been taken over by a wicked man who's oppressing all their friends and family, and who just for the fun of it has destroyed their beautiful homeland. And so what do these four former bumbling idiots do? By themselves, with no tough guys to help them, they start a rebellion and they beat him and they save their people. And uh, you know, the point is they've grown through the journey. And everybody loves a good story like that. You love the underdog story, you love the little guys who like go through this trial and become victorious and are mature. We love that story. You just don't want it to be your story. We just don't want to have to groan in order to grow. Nobody wants to go to Mordor to get mature. You don't want to sleep on the ground for two years to, be, to become who you were to be. But that is ex- actually one of the primary ways in which God works in our lives. Look what it says in Hebrews 2. Jesus, the founder of our salvation, the, the model for us. He was made perfect through suffering as a human. We'll talk about exactly what that means in a moment. So that's God's pathway for us. Not his only pathway, not the exclusive pathway, but one of the main ones. We're here to grow, but to grow, we have to groan. There's no holiness without hard. There's no progress without pain. Think of James 1, it's in your, uh, it's in your bulletin. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. You know, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness has its full effect and you become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, trials work for your maturity and your growth into Christ. In fact, First Peter, is all, it says the same, same thing. Uh, for now, if necessary, You've been grieved by various trials that the tested genuineness of your faith might be displayed at the day of Christ. You know, we, uh, we see this in other parts of life, that pain is necessary for growth. Think about exercise. You know, the old saying is no pain, no gain. Like exercise literally tears muscle fibers apart. It actually hurts. But God designed the body to grow back stronger. All right, think about growing up. When I was 14, I was significantly chubbier and uh, had enough zits on my face to you know, populate a small planet. And uh, one of my legs was uneven the other. And every time I spoke up in class or saw a girl, my voice would go you know, squeak, right? And uh, I just wanna say, if you're 13 and that's you right now, I just wanna say, if you keep following Jesus, 
you're going to feel normal eventually. But um, what do we call those unfortunate aspects of growing up? Growing pains. In other words, there are, there's pain involved in maturity. Consider what John Calvin said about Hebrews 2.10. It's in your bulletin. You ever thought Calvin's just a crusty, combative theologian? This might change your mind. Here's what he says. It is indeed a singular consolation, calculated to mitigate or to make, to make less the bitterness of the cross. And he's referring to the crosses that believers bear, okay? Here's what he says. When the faithful hear that by sorrows and tribulations they are sanctified for glory as Christ himself was, and then they see a good reason why they should lovingly kiss the cross rather than dread it. And I know some of you here have crosses that I would dread. And I just want to ask you, by faith, trusting in God's providence, your life, trusting that he does have good for you, can you ask the Lord to help you kiss your cross this morning? To see that it's taking you along the path that our Lord Jesus himself went on his way to the glory he now has. And um, some of you, though, um, life's okay right now. It's actually pretty great. And, and, and if your life is great right now, I'm not saying that how I describe this next person is you. But sometimes uh, our lives don't have a lot of pain because we have built walls around our lives to insulate them from pain. Um, my wife and I were foster parents for a little while and uh, people would always say this to us. And if you said this to a foster parent, I'm not, I'm not talking to you, okay? I'm not calling you out. It's fine, I know it was a compliment, but they're trying to compliment us and they would say this. They would say, you guys are so amazing in what you're doing. Thank you so much. That feels good, right? But then they would say this, um, I could never do what you do. I could never love a child as my own and then have to give them back. It would just be too excruciating. And it's just important to say that it's excruciating for foster parents too. They are not superhuman. Uh, they feel the same things, but, but that's not my point. My point is this. Whenever you say about anything that obeys Christ and honors him, whenever you say, I could never do that because it would be too excruciating and hard. You might think that you are building a wall around your life to protect you and those you love. You're actually building a coffin. You're actually suffocating some of the things that God intends in your life because the hardship of obedience to Jesus in the hard things, that is one of the primary ways. It's not just the stuff that kind of happens to us. That God uses that, thankfully. But it's, it's taking up what God has called us to do and the hardship there that makes us like Jesus. So God's pathway for us involves pain and difficulty. So now we've seen God's purpose for us is to bring us to glory. And we've seen that God's pathway for us involves uh, a significant degree for some of us, pain. Um, and since that's the case, we can finally see what is so beautiful about Jesus in Hebrews 2. Let's go back to Hebrews 2, verses 10 and 11. Read, read it again with that in mind, okay? If we are people who are growing into restored humanity and we must, in a, to a degree, suffer to get there, 
Read this again. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. The logic of this passage is that it makes God look so good to send Jesus, not just because he can represent us and, and pay for the eternal consequences of our sin, which is, is very important. It's the center of the gospel, but also so that he can go before us in whatever life gives us. There is no, because Jesus was truly a human, because he had a fully human nature and he suffered more than any human ever was. He was tempted more than any of us ever were because he never gave in. That means there's no experience no trial, no sorrow, no dark night of the soul that you can go through that he has not gone before you in for your sake to be present with you, to meet you, to give you power and victory there. He's the perfect savior for groaning and growing people because he, as a human, groaned and grew. Now, I want to just take a step back for a second and just... Uh, I think whenever we talk about Jesus, uh, we gotta remember that what we think of Jesus and his nature is one of the most important things about us. We wanna think clearly about Christ. And so uh, Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the, uh, he upholds the universe by the word of his power and he is the exact radiance of the glory of God. In other words, he is God himself. Nobody else upholds the universe besides God. It's very clear in this book, in the scriptures, he is God. He's not half God, he's not a superhuman, no, he's fully God, but he's also fully human. So uh, the church has said over the years that uh, Jesus Christ is one person with two natures, a fully divine nature, a full and human nature. The best way to think about this, I think, is that God the Son, who has always existed, who has always God himself, that in the fullness of time, he added to himself a fully human nature. He didn't like mix natures or anything. He added to himself a fully human nature. And that, um, that might sound uh, you know, super complex or theological or not relevant, but, but when you understand that Jesus was truly human, not just that he had a physical body, but he was truly mind, body, soul, heart, will, human. It means that he really can go with us into all the humanity of our life, into all of our heart. He's been there. I'm not sure where you're at. He's been there. You know, I love a well-marked trail. Um, I, uh, I'm a worst-case scenario person. I'm always preparing for the worst. And uh, so I love to hike, uh, but when I hike, um, we get half a mile into the woods and I start thinking all the crazy thoughts. So I start thinking, all right, what happens when, not if, but when a bear comes out uh, and he's hungry. All right, do I have a rock? Do I have a stick? Like, what do I have around me, right? Um, and uh, this really came out uh, a couple of, about a month ago, me and Sarah were on a hike in North Carolina. We actually, it was an accidental hike. We left our cabin saying, we need to go for a walk. And two hours later, we're three miles up in the Blue Ridge Mountains. I don't even know how we got there. We just kept making bad decisions, right? Um, we actually planned on taking the one mile loop and somehow took the six mile out and back. Anyways, um, we're up there and uh, we realized we've been hiking for about an hour, hour and a half, and the sun goes down in 30 minutes and we haven't turned around yet. So we're gonna be hiking back in the dark. Um, and then of course, uh, fog like there is only in the Blue Ridge Mountains rolls in. 
And so all of a sudden, now I'm thinking, we're at the beginning of a zombie movie. Like, they're going to come. Like, they're coming. Like, like when, when are they coming? Like, ah. Uh, and, and to make matters even better, there's actually a retreat that I'm teaching on. And so I'm teaching in two hours. And so all of the crazy is coming out. Um, but fortunately for my uh, anxious heart, this was a well-marked trail. And every five minutes or so, we passed a tree, and this tree was, had a big notch on it, and it had this giant red square. And I was like, okay, breathe. If I keep walking, you know, like... You know, maybe the zombies will still kill us, but like, 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 like we're going to get back if I just keep going. And uh, friends, because Jesus was truly human, because he grew and groaned and was tempted and suffered, that means that if you follow him, you walk on a well-marked trail. I'm not saying that it's not dark sometimes. I'm not saying that sometimes you can barely see the next step in front of you or that it's exhausting, but if you keep going, you will make it. And Jesus himself will be there with you, not just as someone who's gone before you, but someone who's experienced what you're in. He can truly help you because he was truly human. And uh, if you're not a Christian this morning, most of this message is directed towards Christians, Uh, but if you're not a Christian, um, or maybe you're not sure if you're a Christian or you're a child of this church and haven't trusted Christ yet, you need Jesus to save you from your sins. You need him to save you so you can go to heaven. And uh, that's huge and important, and um, you need to care about that. <laughs> that, should be a, that should be a question on your mind, like, where do I go when I die? However, uh, if you are the typical American non-Christian, you don't really care that much about eternal salvation. What you really want, maybe right now, is someone who can just know you and empathize with you and help you in all the crazy of your life. And uh, Jesus isn't the only one. He isn't only the only one who can save you. He's the only one who can really know you and really meet you and really empathize with you. And if you come to Christ, if you do that hard, scary thing or that thing that you're just not really about right now, and you, you rest upon him, you trust him, you look to him to save you, you admit you're a sinner, you, you repent, you, turn, you give your life into his hands, He won't just save you from your sins. He will meet you in the middle of your life as a friend, as we'll see in a second, as a brother. I encourage you to come. The rest of this passage applies this incredible truth of Jesus' true humanity in a variety of ways. So let's let's look here. I'll make three applications uh, from the text before we close. So, Jesus is our most fitting savior as a human who suffered. Uh, First thing, uh, verses 11 to 13 say that because he was a human, your most fitting savior calls you family. Notice the the logic here. He who sanctifies Jesus, those who are sanctified, that's us. We all have one source, humanity. And verse 11 says, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Uh, And there's... Two old, three Old Testament quotes here from two passages. Uh, all of them are in the context of people who were suffering, struggling, and being faithful to God, and naming other people as their family. So the idea, I think, is that Jesus is the chief of those, and his people are the ones he calls family. But look at those two words, not ashamed, and brothers, or you could say sisters or children. 
That, if you know Jesus, that is what Jesus speaks over your life. Not when you're doing great, not when you're triumphant, not when you're fearless and life's going great, but in the middle of your humanity. Jesus is not ashamed of you. Some of you here, uh, you need to receive that. You've let what other people have spoken over your life. You've let the shame of your upbringing or your experience or people said define you. And this morning, a step towards joy and repentance for you looks like receiving this from Jesus. He calls you family. You have a seat at the table. He's not ashamed of you. Second, because he was a human, your most fitting savior Jesus has conquered the scariest things. Look at verses 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So logic here is, because we share in flesh and blood, flesh and blood that in a fallen world is subject to death and the devil, the scariest things you could imagine, okay? Because that's us. He took it on himself so that as God, as a perfect human being, he could conquer it, conquer the scariest things in our place and deliver us from the fear of them. As there's nothing scarier dying or facing all the assaults and all the evil the devil brings into our lives. And Jesus has promised his people that whenever we go to death, whenever we face the evil one, he brings not just his presence, uh, not just help, but his victorious power there. Death leads to resurrection. Assaults from the evil one lead to glory. And if Jesus has conquered the scariest things, I promise you, he has conquered the thing that you are fearful the most of right now. I don't know what it is. I don't know what keeps you up at night. I'm not sure what, what you fill your life with distraction from to avoid thinking about. But if that happened to you tomorrow, if your worst fears come true, Jesus doesn't just promise to meet you there, to help you, to sympathize with you, but also to bring you his victorious power. It works out for your good. Putting fear to death in your life is not just a matter of saying, God, please deliver me from this. Help me not be fearful. It's a matter of saying, if and when this happens, Jesus would bring me his victory. Uh, third, your most fitting savior has dealt with all of your sin and can help you with your sin. And I emphasize the word all here because the typical way that we think about Jesus dealing with our sins is the central way. Uh, like the passage, this passage says, he's, he's the priest who represents us and who makes propitiation, which is a fancy word that means that Jesus takes people who are under God's judgment and through his sacrifice, he brings them to people who are God's favor. It is, it is the most glorious truth. This passage also says he doesn't just do that. He doesn't just deal with the vertical, eternal consequences of our sins. He deals and can help with our present experience of sin. Notice what it says. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus' humanity means that he can help you with your temptations. 
He can help you as you face suffering and you want to respond in a bad way or, or whatever happens. He can, when the devil tempts you, he can help you because he's been there. Without sin, never, never sinned. He's been truly tempted though. And he, and he can deal and, and bring you his help, his human, fully human, fully obedient to God help into your sin and temptations. You can trust him not just to forgive you, but to give you victory over your sins. And maybe this morning, the reason you have no victory over your besetting sin is you've been relying on yourself. Turn to him for help. He can help. There's even more that Jesus can deal with with our sin. Uh, he can deal with the emotional and spiritual consequences of our sin. I mean, you, you probably know how it feels. You, you blow up on someone or you fall in a way that would be embarrassing to talk about and, and you feel separated from God. Or maybe you read your Bible and it convicts you and you see that you're not doing these things. And maybe, maybe that means I'm not a Christian. Maybe that means God's not favorable. I'm just, you know, inside of my mind, maybe a little bit there. But Jesus has dealt with that too. He has faced and born and experienced the judgment of God on sinners. He has experienced God forsakenness. So if you feel God forsaken this morning, guess who else has felt that and can meet you there and help you? Your fitting savior. So to summarize these things, uh, what we've seen is that because Jesus was truly human, the very places in our human experience where we are tempted to feel like God has left the building and that we are alone and that he can't meet us there. Our, our sins, our temptations, our weaknesses, our fears, our brokenness. Those are the places where we can draw most near to our empathetic, sympathetic savior. So I just have one question for you um, as we close that I want you to chew on and think about this week. On who or what are you relying on for help in your humanity? Where do you go with your heart? What do you do to deal with all the trials and sufferings and temptations you face in this life? This book was written to a group of people whose big temptation was to walk away from Jesus because their Christian lives had gotten hard. Their culture was pressuring them. Sound familiar? And the argument of this passage is that walking away from Jesus because things are hard is insanity because he's the only one who can help you with hard. And maybe that's not your temptation this morning, but maybe the way you're dealing with your pain and your difficulty is a small way of walking away from Jesus. Self-medicating, spending hours in front of a screen to unwind, um, going friend after friend after friend, to pastor, to mentor, to mentor, to figure out if someone has a magical word to make you feel better. Those things are not relying upon Christ for help. And Christ is not, he's not disappointed in you for that. He's not frustrated with you. He's empathetic towards you. He's felt the difficulty and suffering of human life. And he invites you this morning to come to him, your fitting human suffering savior for help in all of your needs. Let's do that this week. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, indeed, you are our help in times of need. I pray specifically for people in this room who are suffering 
and who have no idea what you're doing, and I just pray that you would bring rest and trust, and I pray you'd bring your particular helping presence and power into their lives. Um, And I pray for each of us this week to just glory in the beauty of a fully divine, fully victorious, and fully human Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.